you would open up to the book of First John with me. Um, we're going to be looking at the last uh, few verses there in chapter 2 and then the first part of chapter 3 today. Last week we, we heard John's exhortation, his encouragement for us to abide in who, who we are, abide in the love of the Father for us, abide in the truth of who Jesus Christ is, abide in the anointing presence of the Spirit in our lives. And this morning, as we, we pick up this next section, we're going to hear John continue that, that exhortation and that encouragement, but he wants us to, to think about and understand what it means for us to be children of God as we, we live in that place of abiding. But he, he's going to, to talk about how children of God see and, and know who God is. He's going to talk about the sight, the sightedness of the children of God. This week I, I read a, an illustration from N.T. Wright, a great New Testament scholar, who relayed the story of, of a man he was acquainted with uh, who lost his vision early in adulthood due to a medical condition. And so this man, uh, as he became a, an adult, uh, eventually he got married, eventually he had children of his own, and he, he knew them, of course, in, in so many different ways, but he had never seeing his wife or his children with his own eyes. Some years later, though, a medical procedure became available that was able to correct his, his condition. And so, at that point in time, his sight was actually restored anew to him as an adult who was now married, who now had children of his own. And Wright asks us to imagine the kind of joy, the kind of knowledge that took place that, that day, right? When, when that father, for the first time, laid eyes on his wife, laid eyes on his own children. And not only his joy in that moment, but also the joy of his wife and children in that moment of recognition, of being seen by him in a new way. Right, that that additional element of, of knowledge, of sight, would add this, this greater and, and more beautiful and transforming dimension to those relationships. As we look at the beginning of chapter 3 today, John's going to turn his focus to one of the, the greatest gifts of the gospel, the gift of new life in Jesus, or, or how he talks about it here is, is the gift of new birth, new identity. And he describes that new birth and new, that new identity as becoming the children of God. But he says that as we, as we approach that incredible gift, that it asks us to see Jesus in a new way and also to be seen by him in a new way. That to, to be the children of God is, is to be given a, a new set of eyes. And we, we will see, as John unpacks this passage, that we are called both to look back at the first coming, the first appearance, the first revealing of Jesus that John has already testified to, right? that he was an eyewitness to, but that he also wants us to, to have eyes to see what it's going to be like for us, the children of God, on the day Jesus appears again, on the day of his next coming. And how that 
that ability to see both the future of Jesus coming again, but also looking back and seeing and understanding the, the coming and the, the work of Jesus already in our lives. How that, that grows the sense of abiding, how it grows this place and identity of being the children of God. Let me pray for us as we read through this passage that God would do that unveiling and revealing. Lord, we are grateful for the gift of your word, that it is truth, it is life, it is light unto our path. We're grateful for the gift of the spirit that illuminates this word, that applies it to our hearts, that guides our understanding into all truth. Lord, we're grateful for the, the love and mercy and grace you show us as we encounter your word. That we are invited to be changed by it, by the power of that love you have for us. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I preach, may each of our hearts, the, the movement, the desirings, the orientations of our hearts be pleasing to you, be directed toward you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is uh, John, 1 John, we'll pick up in verse 28 of chapter 2. As we read, maybe pay attention to where you see the language of sight and seeing. John says, and now, dear children, continue in Jesus. Abide. There's that word again. Abide in him. So that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you also know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Chapter 3. See then what great love the Father has lavished upon us that we should now be called the children of God. And this is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. But dear friends, we are now children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. It's sort of a, a bridge here at the end of chapter 2 between last week's passage on abiding and this week's passage focusing on the, the children of God. And so in verse 28, he gives us another a final encouragement to abide, to continue in Jesus. Right? To continue to, to abide in that love of the Father for us, to continue to abide in the truth of Jesus, that he is the Christ, he is the full embodiment of God's divinity and humanity and, and human flesh come to save us. To abide in the, the anointing of God's spirit that now leads us and, and gives us truth and teaches us. It says, continue on, remain in that abiding. But now as he ends 
chapter 2, he shifts kind of the focus. He shifts the motivation for why that abiding is so important. And he says, I want you to remain in him now, but I want you to do so because of a future reality. I want you to see something that hasn't happened yet. Continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. John invites us to to think about what it will be like on the day that Jesus comes again, that Jesus is, is revealed, his full appearing takes place. And you will stand before him face to face with new sight. John says, if you can imagine that moment of unveiling, of revelation, says, I want you to think, back now into the present moment, and and I want to ask you, how does the trajectory of your life today line up with your anticipation of that future day? If it were to happen in this moment, if Jesus were to reveal himself now, would that moment of unveiling, of being before God himself, face to face, would it be a moment of of rejoicing? Would it be the culmination of your, your hopes and your desires and your delights? Or or could it be a moment of hiding and shame and fearfulness? John wants our present orientation to to line up with the hope of that future day. And so he says, if if you are abiding in Jesus, if you're continuing on in him now, right? If you're, you're walking in the light of Jesus, if you're learning how to love like Jesus, if you're confessing your sin to Jesus... If you're living as Jesus lives, these are all things he's already exhorted us to do in chapter 1 and chapter 2. He says, if you, if you abide in all those things, then on that day when Jesus reveals himself and you stand before him face to face, it, it will be as if your life has come to that full and final conclusion. It will be a moment of celebration and unveiling and revealing. And as he says here, you will rejoice knowing that you have been born you belong to him, that you have nothing to hide. On that day, you will know you are attached to him. You are known by him. You are loved by him. So John is inviting us to see that future reality when Jesus comes again. Imagine it. And so I think that's why in verse 1 of chapter 3 here, John John says, okay, so think forward to that day, and I I want you to to revel in this truth, in this reality for a moment. I don't want to let go of it yet. If I could paraphrase verse 1. John says, can you believe it? Literally, can you see it with me? Behold with me. Look at this with me. That God loves us so much that he has made us his children of God now. That even right now in our immature state, in our, in our struggling with sin state, in our, in our stumbling but, but still walking and abiding and stepping out into the light of Jesus, even in that imperfect state, God says, you are my children. He calls us that today, John says. Can you believe it? 
says, we are the children of God. It's true, he says, that is what we are. Do you know that this is how God sees you? As God looks upon you today, he says, you are my child. If you abide in Jesus the Son. Of course, the, the challenge for us is that we don't always live in, in, in know and receive that understanding that that's how God sees us because the world doesn't see us in that way. The world doesn't understand that you are a child of God. The world doesn't understand what it is to be a child of God. It, it doesn't see or perceive that reality, John says. But God has, has given us other means to affirm that identity. Right? He's put his spirit in you to confirm that you are his child. The spirit, Paul will say, that calls out, Abba, Father, Daddy. He's given us the, the truth of his revealed word that says, this is who you are. You are my child. I love you. And he's given us the, the ministry of, of his love for us that we can experience and feel and know that we belong to him. These things confirm that we're his children. And so, John says, as his children who abide in him, we can trust that when we think about that future day when Christ is, is fully revealed and we stand before him, he says, you can trust this. You're his children now, but on that day, you are going to be like Jesus. There's this whole thing that John does in his gospel, in his letters, for John, to see is to be. To behold is to become. What you set your sight on transforms who you are. And so if we see Jesus fully on that day, on that day we will be fully like him. We will be transformed by his glory. So he says, see, this is what we will be when he appears. The end of verse 2 there. And so John, again, he's trying to help us as children of God to see our, our future, to see how that should, should change the orientation of our hearts in the present. And so in verse 3, he says this, if your hope is aimed at that day, then in this present moment, it should, it should give you renewed hope as well. You should have hope that's drawn from, from a confidence about the future reality, the future promise that you will be like Jesus. But John says that hope, verse 3, also transforms this present moment. Verse 3, all those who have this future hope, he says, they purify themselves. All who know that one day you will be like Jesus in every respect, John says. In the, in the present moment, that hope gives them the desire to, to purify and, and to cleanse themselves and to keep coming into the light of Jesus to be changed now. Right? It's a, a future hope that's informing our present moment. It's like if, if you told me in four months you're going to run a marathon, and right now, you know, you can only run a couple miles. 
Well, you're, you're going to start changing the way you live, the choices you make now to condition yourself, to prepare yourself for that, that hope you have, for that, that desire you have that's coming. Right? You wouldn't wait until the last moment to train for something like a marathon. So John says here, the children of God have this future orientation. That one day, imagine this, one day, you and, and the people sitting next to you will be like Jesus in every single way. Can you imagine your spouse being like Jesus in every way? That's a big stretch. Can you imagine yourself being like Jesus in every possible way? But John says that is a day that is coming. So that should give us hope and desire to be pure as Jesus is pure now. The future informs the present. We need to be able to see that future so that it changes us now. But in addition to the way that future reality changes our present moment, commentator Karen Jobes points out that our present moment is also changed. That, that actual future hope is based on what Christ has already done, what happened in his first appearing. And so if you follow me here, this gets a little complicated, but our present hope about Jesus' second coming is actually grounded in the power of his first appearing. Our present hope about Jesus' future coming is grounded in the power of Jesus' past appearance. And so there's a, a sense in which we have to see our future in light of what Jesus has already done. Look with me at verses 4 through 9. We've got to do this forward-looking, but we've got to do this backward-looking at Jesus. John continues, he says, right, we have this hope that purifies us as we think about the future, but now he wants to, to talk about the problem, the power of sin. He says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that Jesus appeared so that he might take away our sins. And you know that in him is no sin. No one who lives, or there's that word again, abides, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is righteous the one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains or abides in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have now been born of God. There's a lot to unpack in those verses. But I want you to notice, to start out by noticing that twice in these verses, John talks about Jesus' appearance, but he talks about it in the past tense now. Right? He's just been talking about that, that day that's yet to come when Jesus will appear. Now he's taking us back into when Jesus already appeared. Look at verse 5 
and again in verse 8. He says, you know that when he appeared, ED, right? Past tense. Verse 8, the reason that the Son of God appeared, again, past tense. It's the, it's the same word he's using in the, the earlier verses, but now he's changed it. It's tense. Changed where it's looking. So John is telling us we're looking back at a historical reality. Right? This is the reality that he started his letter out by testifying to. He says, right, that which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have touched, this Jesus that came and that I was an eyewitness to, that I've told you about. I want to tell you about why he came and what happened when he appeared that time. John says that too has implications for what it means to be a child of God now. Look at verse 5. He says, you know that Jesus appeared so that he would take away our sins. And then in verse 8, he goes on to say that the Son of God appeared to destroy the devil's work. And so taken together, John is, is saying that our hope, that our, the power that we have to live with the kind of purity that anticipates that future day, that cleansing and that renewing and that transforming that should be taking place now, the power for that is actually in what Jesus has already done. Remember why he appeared. When Jesus appeared, he revealed himself to be the one who can take away sin. Right? What, is, what does John the Baptist say when Jesus walks by at the beginning of John's gospel? But behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who Jesus is. He's the one who can deal with our shame, with our guilt, with our condemnation, with our, our hiding in the dark. Jesus comes to remove all that. And Jesus also came as the one who destroyed the work of the devil, who could break the power of sin and death and darkness. He's done it. His life, his death, his resurrection has, have revealed to us, they have confirmed already that Jesus has the power to dismantle the work of sin in our lives. Jesus came to be our sin breaker, John's saying. And so if you are a child of God, if you're called to abide in the power of Jesus in his first revealing, his first coming, then know this, the Jesus you abide in has power over sin. And you abide in that power. So John, I think, draws for us a couple conclusions about what that means for us in this present moment. If that's who Jesus is, if that's why he was revealed in the first place, the first coming. He says, if Jesus came to take away sin, and if in Jesus there is no sin, then that means you and I cannot abide in sin. We can't make our home in sin. We can't remain in sin. Either we belong to this family of Jesus, right? Either, either we belong to the one who says, it's my mission to abolish the power of sin in your life. It's my, my mission to destroy darkness and death and the work of the devil. Either we say, I belong to that one, to Jesus, or else John says, we are making our camp, we are building our home in, in the devil's work. We remain there instead. Verses 7 and 8. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, 
just as Jesus is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So we are to abide in Jesus. We're to abide in his righteousness. But I think as we read those verses, the question that arises probably for all of us is, well, what does John mean? Does John mean that I stop abiding in Jesus the moment I sin? Does John mean that I lose my place as God's child if I sin? And there have actually been teachers and and sects that have arisen in Christian teaching over the years that have insisted that if you are not perfect, if you are not sinless, then you are not a Christian, based on these verses. But I don't think they're reading John carefully. Because if you go back and you read this whole letter, remember back in chapter 1, John says, if we don't confess that we have sin, we deceive ourselves. Right? Verse, verse 2. Chapter 2 of 1 John, he says, when you sin, you have Jesus, an advocate. Jesus, the atoning sacrifice, there to minister to you. So I don't, I don't think you can read 1 John and coherently say, John expects us in this moment as the children of God to be sinless, with, to be without sin. But what he does say is that we cannot abide We cannot, as, as followers of Jesus, choose to remain in sin. We cannot choose to ignore our sin. We cannot choose to justify our sin. And we cannot choose to define sin on our terms. It says that when we sin, we must choose to continue to abide in Jesus in that moment. To bring ourselves back into the light of Jesus. Where he advocates, where he atones, where he breaks power of sin. And I think the aspect of sin John is most concerned about here comes up in verse 4. When he talks about sin being lawlessness. The word in, in Greek is anomia. And it's, it's a word that John actually is referencing. Again, it's, it's, it appears several times in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint. In the prophets, particularly, it actually appears in Jesus' own teaching. Jesus talks about this condition of lawlessness. And it's more than just breaking a rule or, or failing to obey a particular law. When one is lawless, Robert Yarborough, a biblical scholar, explains. He says, it, it, in the scriptures, when this word is used, it refers to those who have resolutely turned away from God to the point that they can no longer be regarded as God's people, but have, in fact, become like enemies. To be lawless is to reject God's authority to define sin, to reject God's authority to call us out of sin and into his light to be seen as we really are. It's to reject that Jesus wants to and desires to break the power of sin in our lives. Karen Jobes, in her commentary, points out that, that it was this idea of, of lawlessness, of defining sin for ourselves and rejecting God's authority. It was, it was that strategy that the devil uses in the garden with Eve and with Adam. 
Here's the devil's strategy. You want to be like God? The way to become like God is, is to be anomia, is to be a law unto yourself, to reject God's authority, to reject God's definition of, of good and evil. The devil's strategy is to make you and I the measure of sin and the measure of righteousness, to make us a law unto ourselves. But praise be to God, John says, Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. And so the children of God are those who surrender their anomia, their lawlessness. They come back into the light and they say, take my sin. Take my sin away. Cleanse me. Purify me. They confess their sin. They, they step into the light that Jesus may break its power over them. As verse 9 declares here, these children know what it is to be born again, to be born of God. And so there's this, again, there's this twofold dimension. I hope that what you've heard in this passage this morning is that you should be greatly encouraged. You are the children of God today, even as you struggle with sin, even as you are not yet fully mature. Even as you may even experience that voice of condemnation from the enemy, John says, know that you are God's children because, not you're perfect, but because you abide in Jesus, the one who has already revealed himself, who has already come and has broken the power of sin. Be encouraged. You know Jesus, the one who destroys the work of the devil. But as that child of God also be encouraged and know that one day you're going to be like Jesus in every way. So let that change you. Let that transform you. Let that set your heart on the reality of that coming day so that you would be pure as Jesus is pure. That you would not give sin place in your life as God's child. I want to pray for you in just a moment. But I also invite you to think about these, these couple of questions here. And very briefly, the first question is just, do you experience this reality of being a child of God? Do you consider yourself a child of God? And if you do, what, what hope does that bring you? How does that change who you are and how you live right now? That you are God's child. If you don't know that, Experience. If you do not consider yourself a child of God, what, what's holding you back? Would you, would you like to become a child of God? And if, and if you would, talk to me. Come up and talk to our prayer team this morning. We would love to, to pray with you that you might step into that reality of being and knowing and abiding in what it is to be God's child. Second, second question if Jesus has appeared to take away our sin and to destroy the work of the devil, is there an area of sin in your life that you desire Jesus to take away, to transform, to break the power of sin over you? And what would it mean for you practically to, to seek that help, to step into the light and ask Jesus to be that power over sin for you? And again, maybe that's something you want to speak to a friend about, maybe that's something you might want to share with our prayer team. 
today. And they, they can speak the truth and the love and the grace of Jesus over you. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. May we behold, may we be in awe, may we wonder as John, from what far off place has this reality come? That we, you and I, are called God's children today. How greatly we are loved. May we abide in that love. Amen.